In this report, my vestigially humble and doubtless terribly flawed attempt to turn you into a tear-down Jedi. <laughs> Tearing stuff apart, obviously. Not all that hard. Except if you'd like to get it back together again and have whatever it is actually work. So I've got 10 or 12 rules, guidelines really, for how to do that. We'll get the teardown objective and the back together again functioning target and line them both up and pull the trigger and see what happens. I'm John Logan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap the next week until 2022 runs out. And frankly, who can see further down the track than that, I ask you? Anywho, Australia-only website, card. Now, it strikes me that if you're a dude like me, that you might have a little bit more spare time on your hands than usual for the next week or two, and there's something in Yo Fat Cave that's crying out to you in your sleep. It wants you to lay your hands gently upon it and apply your restorative touch. It could be in the driveway. A little something for the neighbours to look through the Venetian blinds and pervert you doing out there. I don't know. Anyway, it could be in the shed out the back. What I'm saying is there's probably something at Yo Joint that needs you to fix it. And now's the time, dude. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it. This is not like... It's just a whole bunch of tips. And Like, I see all these people doing stuff and they've never had their hands on the tools in an industrial setting. And thus, they do F up many of the basics. And my plan here is to give you 10 or 12 tips, guidelines, techniques, whatever, that just make the whole thing about tearing it down, which is easy but getting it back together and bonus points for having it function, which is actually a lot harder. We're going to line those two objectives up. We're going to get something apart. We're going to figure out what's wrong with it. And then we're going to get it back together. Won't that be satisfying? But first, Bluetti, the portable power dudes, having a sale. Starts today the 26th and it goes until next Saturday the 31st. You'll get up to 22% off. And if you happen to be going... What's Blue Eddie? They're the portable power dudes. I've used a lot of their products and tested them and I'm not gonna be exhaustive about it now, but there's a sale on right now. You get up to 22% off and it's essentially battery in a box with an inverter and a whole bunch of power out options, including 12 volts DC and inductive charge pad on top for your phone and your tablet and whatever, and a bunch of USB out and pure sine wave 240 volt electricity. So these things range in size from like six-pack beer cooler size up to Jesus let's get some laborers in because I can't lift this myself if you want the full home battery backup option with all the modular batteries so I don't recommend products that I haven't used and I have used about depends how you define product but probably 12 of the damn things by now ranging from really really small to really quite big and home battery backup like and they work. They're just well-sorted-out products, basically. So there's a link in the description. And during the sale, for example, if you want a, a small one for camping, overnighting, that sort of thing to take onto the boat, and you don't want to run the Taj Mahal if the power goes down, you just want a little bit of electricity, have a look at the EB55. You'll get 200 bucks off it. Uh, if you want something a bit bigger, like about 
Yo Big, then have a look at the AC200 Max, which you can also get with a whole bunch of expansion batteries, if that is Yo Want. I've got the AC200 Max just under the bench, and it's actually quite useful for running the studio from time to time, and things of that nature, because I haven't got a PowerPoint right over there, and it's a kind of convenient solution. 700 bucks off that with one expansion battery, which is called a B230, and you'll get 800 bucks off the AC300 with its B300 battery expansion packs. And this thing is the complete off-grid home setup. Like, if the grid goes down, you can run a lot of things for a long time with the full AC300 and B300 battery pack setup. 800 bucks off, plus you'll get a free trolley. And don't scoff at the free trolley. You'll damn well need that, because those batteries are heavy. They're about 30 kilos apiece, so you won't be running uphill with six of them anytime soon. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, link in the description for all of that stuff. The sales on now from Boxing Day until Saturday, uh, New Year's Eve, and yeah, dude, that is my sponsorship obligation. I all done and dusted. Yes, let's talk about pulling stuff apart. I've got these hacks here. They're not really hacks. They're just like basic principles that a lot of people gloss over because they rip into pulling something apart and they end up with a whole bunch of busted whatever all over the floor, and then. <sighs> going with the flow of the second law of thermodynamics on the way apart and then they see this chaos around them and they go Jesus dude how do I get this back together and we all know it's never going to work and that's just an expensive mistake so but my problem for these holidays was actually that my linisher died I don't blame it for dying it's 12 years old it's actually just coming up for its 12th birthday it was built in January of 2011 and it sits in a dark dank corner of my fat cave and every time it rains it gets a little bit of you know humidity and light mist all over it and who blames it for just croaking but I turned it on one day to turn metal into less sharp and better shaped metal and it just went like this and stalled on the grid and I went oh Jesus great you know so Christmas was my opportunity to pull that apart and I was expecting it to be one problem and it was actually a different one but I thought to myself as I was going through this process never having had my linisher apart before these things are always a journey of discovery you know it's always like into the great unknown no matter how many times you've done something similar in the past I thought this is kind of a story that might be useful to you because you might have a bearing that's seized up in your trailer or you might just want to service those things and you haven't done it before and you might have some machinery, some lawnmower that's not working apart like a exhaust manifold that's cracked on a piece of yard equipment. It doesn't matter. You've got to get it apart and then you've got to figure out what's wrong with it and you've got to get it back together. I've got 12 basic guidelines to go through here and I don't want to detain you too long for any of them but I want to cover them in sufficient depth so that you know where I'm coming from. And essentially it's 10 guidelines and a couple of principles before the 10 guidelines start. So we'll kick off with the two things that I think is a good idea just to be in the right headspace for before you get your hands on the tools. And the first one is the mindset, right? The mindset is like occupational health and safety if they did it right, which is warning, don't die. Okay, like 
OHS is managed badly because people tend to think that you know bright orange vest is a safe system of work and it's really not the thing you've got to do is you've got to say to yourself that everything you do in a place like this every machine you've got every substance you interact with every tool you pick up be it a hand tool or a power tool its main objective is that it wants to kill you and your main objective is don't let it okay so warning don't die just think about it like that like Every chemical that is flammable wants to put you in the burns unit. Everything that is powered by 240 volt electricity out of the wall wants to old sparky on you, right? And your job is to not let that stuff happen. And it's not as simple as just wearing your safety specs and hoping for the best. It's like if you've got to weld something together, take 30 seconds and just have a look around and do a quick flammables check before the sparks start to fly. Just confirm that your big fat fire extinguisher is in the corner. And if you don't want to breathe toxic dust, smoke, whatever, then have a system in place for that. And it's not just your respirator. Like, wear a mask certainly to protect your lungs but there are some other things you can do as well for example with stick welding i always put a fan in this corner and open that door so i've got quasi laminar flow out the window kind of out the opening that's always nice i always stick my head back out of the plume of dust because who needs that shit in their lungs you've got to just think about not letting everything in here do what it really wants to which is put you in hospital so that's my theory on that. And with that in mind, my sort of the zeroth rule of doing this shit is disarm the freaking bomb, dude. If you're going to work on a bomb, disarm it, take the detonator out of play, whatever. And that usually means, in the case of machines like the Linisher that I repaired just the other day, it means unplug the freaking thing from the wall. And it's not good enough to go, oh, yeah, I think I unplugged that. Like, grab the cord, trace it to the end, and if it's not in the socket, then good to go. If it's in the socket, in that moment, then that's bad. Take it out. And the other thing I'd suggest is that there are some devices, like not simple devices like a linisher, which is just a big abrasive belt on a motor, there are some devices that remain energised even if you do remove the plug and they would include things like welders, like inverter type welders. They tend to have a lot of capacitors inside them and those capacitors have the capacity to remain energised well after the plug is removed. So I'd be a bit cautious working on something like that. But for a simple device that is just a motor that turns a spindle, disarm the bomb in this way. If you're working on an internal combustion device like a mower or a chainsaw, then identify the spark plug and take the freaking lead off the spark plug and tape it or wire tie it, you know, cable tie it away so that it can't just fall back into its natural position and generate a spark at the exact wrong moment because you don't want your subsequent manipulation of anything to involve it starting and then there's just floor full of fingertips and how are you going to call an ambulance like that dude just you got to be really careful about this stuff and incidentally 
it doesn't have to be the full teardown to warrant this, okay? It can just be the blade replacement on a power saw. If you're doing anything of that nature, unplug the friggin' thing, or if it's battery powered, take the battery out of the device so that it cannot start if you fall over on it or if you just pull the trigger by mistake. And we don't want the floor full of fingers. We want a fixed whatever, okay? Principle number one here is to realise just how freaking Jedi mechanical sympathy is and how counterintuitive it is because it's like getting into the ring, okay? You've got an opponent and your opponent is a malignant, inanimate object and it just wants to keep hurling your curveballs and your job is not to get frustrated because when you get frustrated, you reach for the big hammer. And the big hammer is generally a mistake. Not, not always, but generally. It's not option one. And the curveball that comes at you and you think, yeah, you just go, fuck it, big hammer. And then you just got broken parts all over the floor and you might as well have just replaced whatever item of equipment had broken. So look at it like this. Every time your opponent throws a curveball at you, some kind of left hook, you've got to just get better at slipping and bobbing and ducking and weaving and blocking, okay? You just do. And you won't realise it in the moment because of the capacity for frustration but you are in this process of continuous software upgrade. And the, 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 the bigger the radius on the curve on the ball, the greater the upgrade at the end of solving this problem, okay? So instead of getting frustrated, just take a step back philosophically and look at it again and go, you know what? I'm not letting this beat me. I'm not gonna get frustrated. I'm just gonna be in charge here, okay? And that's so important, even though it's not a tangible thing that you can action, it's a philosophical thing that you kind of have to do every time. It's like, it's like a suit of armor that you have to put on before you grab the tools. Tip number two, counterintuitively, is that impact is your friend. And it may not seem like this if you've never had your hands on the tools, because it may seem like you're better off getting your wrench on some stuck fastener and just pulling gently. And okay, if it undoes, all good. If it doesn't, then Houston, we've got a problem, right? And your options are just pull harder, okay? Or get a bit of pipe and put it on the wrench and use leverage to pull it even harder. And I'd suggest that after doing something like that, you're more likely to break the fastener than if you just grabbed your spanner, grabbed some sort of hammer, gave it a good tap. And every fitter and machinist in the country will be nodding and going, yeah, that's how you do it. But I'd suggest just reasonably good quality chrome vanadium wrenches are more than happy to be struck over and over and over in this way. And it's much less likely to break the fastener than if you just lean on it harder and harder and harder. But if you think that is the only counterintuitive aspect to impact, then I think we should look at it a bit more broadly than that because Phillips head screws. There are four Phillips head set screws. They're about eight or nine inches long that hold that motor together in the linisher, right? It's got two caps and a body and the two caps are held together by these long, I'm going to say M5 maybe, or maybe M6, but I think M5, Phillips head set screws, okay? And the shitty thing about Phillips head, even though they're ubiquitous, is that if you talk 
on a Phillips head screw, the resolution of forces inside the head of the screw has the capacity to eject the driver from the head, right? And what that does, obviously, is burr over the Phillips head. And it just, it, this is a process that keeps going. It also damages the head of your screwdriver, which, if it's a bit old, will start looking a bit worn and then be even more predisposed to being ejected and burr over the fastener, which is often softer than the driver, okay? And in this environment, impact is your real friend as well. And I'm talking about something like this, your little tiny impact driver. Now, this is kind of hilarious because... This is a cheap Chinese sort of Tool Pro is the brand. You get them at super cheap auto, right? And I thought to myself, how shit is it, you know? And my answer was uh, probably fairly shit, and I'm pleasantly surprised. In fact, it's not very shit at all. They come in a kit that uses a lot of impact. Now, obviously, when you've got one of these impact drivers, Phillips, Torx, Hex, all of that stuff, is suddenly available to you and you can reach in there with your Phillips head driver and all you've got to care about is applying sufficient pressure to overcome the uh, tendency of the process to eject the driver. So you press really, really hard and squeeze the trigger and make sure it's set to undo and let impact do the work. And it's much less likely that you will bugger up the eight inch long set screws that you cannot easily replace, right? So impact is your friend here. It's also your friend with your battery ratchet. Battery ratchet. Also, how shit is it? Answer, not very. Actually really useful. Like, and it's an example of impact that really does pay off if something is a little bit reluctant or even if you just bent over in some horrible place with nearly no access and you know you're lifting up and moving and you've only got five degrees worth of motion or which would you prefer and finally in the domain of impact and this is pretty useful as well is mini rattle gun and how shit is it also not very if you've only got half-inch sockets, you've probably got one of these adapters, which is three-eighths to half. And that sort of impact is really good at just persuading something that's reluctant to come loose. Another thing you can do, I should have mentioned this too, another thing you can do with these basic sort of screw driving impact drivers is you can get these little extensions, right? So this is your hex to three-eighths socket sort of driver. That's pretty useful as well. So now you've got a tiny little impact driver like this. You can reach in a long way. You can have a three-eighths socket or a quarter or a half-inch socket in two different lengths. And there's your impact solved, right? You haven't got to get down in there with a long socket and extension and worry about how you're going to hit that. You're just beautiful, okay? Impact really is your friend when it comes to getting stuff like this apart. Tip number three, parts management. What happens is you start pulling something apart. It's really easy to get mission lock on let's get this apart and forget about managing the parts, right? And managing the parts is really important if you want to get whatever 
back together again. So there's a couple of options there. And I always try and slow down just a little bit and leave the overarching objective to pull something apart, to tear it right down to its component atoms or something, and think about how I'm going to manage the parts. And the obvious things you can do are, you can get these little trays like this, right? They're magnetic. So they stick kind of anywhere and they hold your parts, okay? And then your parts will wait patiently wherever. So if you're upside down, lying on your back, working under your car, you can stick this somewhere vertically and little parts can go there instead of rolling down your driveway and then into the fucking store water drain, which is just... It's a smile turned upside down, isn't it, every time something like that happens? And we've all been there. So that's not a bad option. They come in bigger sizes as well. So that's kind of helpful. And all of your small parts, springs, roll pins, wood rough keys, whatever the f in hell it is, little set screws, circlips, all of that stuff, they're taken care of and they'll wait patiently for you until reassembly is required and obviously if you don't want to do that you can rock your inner hood rat crack house sort of vibe thingo and just put the little parts in ziploc baggies like this that's not a bad option also but i tend to find myself just throwing parts in the magnetic trays all the time and it really does simplify the reassembly process because all of those little bits are together and you're not searching around the entire expanse of your workbench which just piles up with more and more and more tools every time you pull some specialist bearing puller or whatever out to handle the next phase of disassembly and you end up with you know 18 inches of tools on the whole workbench and it's dogs and cats living together of disorganization. Number four, thank the Lord Jesus for technology because technology really is your friend. And here I'm talking about photographs. Like remember in the olden days when you needed film and a camera and you needed to send the film away and wait for it to be developed and printed and you get it back. Hope the exposure was right and all of that stuff. Well, not today because everyone has a high definition camera in their pocket right and this is so useful because you get to a point disassembling stuff and if you're thinking about it the right way you're going to think about Jesus how's that going to go back together I've had this happen when I pulled the motor apart on the linisher because the motor's got two ends and a barrel in the middle and that means this end I might misassemble it and put this end on this side and this end on that side or I might have the barrel upside down or one of the ends upside down if that matters so one of the easiest ways to overcome all of these kinds of problems on reassembly is to take photographs of it during disassembly. Anytime you think that might be a problem figuring out which way that went when you're reassembling something, just refer to your photographs, dude. It's so simple, only takes a few seconds, the camera's in your pocket, what excuse do you possibly have? The other thing you can do is you can make what's called witness marks, okay? So you can get your tungsten carbide-tipped scriber or your spring-loaded center pop, and you can just put a couple little pops, you know, two here, two there, line them up, and then those two parts go that way. And on the other end, you put three, and then the twos go with the threes, and they're all on the same face, 
there's no way to get this wrong. And all it takes is a couple of seconds worth of reflection about how hard is this going to be to get back together and how many different permutations of orientation actually are there and how am I going to figure that out. If you're smart enough to say that to yourself on disassembly and just make those witness marks or take the photographs, do that. The one thing I wouldn't do, however, is use like a Sharpie like an art line marker because often the parts are going to go in a tank or you're going to wash them in some solvent and guaranteed the marker is going to come off and you'll be back to which way did they go together again get the number of that bus so witness marks excellent idea photographs excellent idea do them both and there's really no way to avoid getting them back the right way the first time Number five now, whenever you're pulling something apart and you're preparing it for reassembly and you do those things contemporaneously often enough, WD is your friend. And one of the things you might not have realised about WD is that it's mostly solvent. And solvent is really good. It makes it good at penetrating, but it's also good at getting stuff like varnish and baked on residue and things of that nature off. So soaking those bits that are reluctant to come apart in WD makes it much easier to prepare them for reassembly. And if you don't particularly like WD, I can also thoroughly recommend this stuff, which is inox MX4 lanolin thingo, lanox or whatever they call it. And you can get this in a pressure pack as well, it's pretty good. I tend to use the spray pack one for this. I tend to prefer the inox for reassembly, whereas I think the WD's got better sort of solvent action for disassembly and preparation for reassembly. But when you're getting it back together, I'd rate this stuff over the WD purely because I think it's more lubricant and less solvent, whereas this is more solvent and less lubricant. Anytime you're preparing anything, in fact, if you buy a new machine and it comes in that awful cosmoline shit, that really thick, gooey oil that's nearly grease, WD is one of the safest ways to get that off. Like, I wouldn't go near brake cleaner if my life depended on it because of the chlorinated chemicals in much of brake cleaner. They're just bad for you off the bat. And certainly if you're ever going to weld the part later, don't touch it with brake cleaner because the chlorinated uh, chemicals in brake cleaner decompose exothermically to form phosgene gas, which is toxic, like a deadly poison in very small concentrations. And I don't think there's a cure. So if you're going to go near anything with heat, which is absolutely likely on disassembly, because one of the other ways to deal with a stuck fastener is to heat it up with a torch, like a gas torch. If you've already tried the brake cleaner, then that is just one of the worst possible conceivable scenarios, and nobody talks enough about that. So pretty good solvent for safe use, irrespective of what happens next, I'd suggest. And this stuff, if you haven't used it, it's awesome for corrosion protection, and it's also a really good lubricant for reassembly of you know general parts. Number six now from the department of things that do your friggin' head in. Some fasteners are left-handed threads. And which ones are they? That's the question, right? A general rule of thumb here is that when you look at 
the linisher, okay? The linisher's got a drive pulley on it that has to come off. It's the main drive pulley that creates the tractive effort that makes the belt go round, okay? And it's got to come off so that you can remove the motor from the body of the machine. Not optional. And it's held in place with a keyed shaft and to prevent end float, they put like a big thick washer and a screw, like a machine screw, which you might think of as a bolt. It's just a hex head machine screw. You've got to ask yourself, is it going to be left-hand or right-handed thread? And how do you tell, right? Because if you crank on it the wrong way and it's a left-handed fastener, you're only going to make it tighter and vice versa, okay? So the general rule of thumb here is that if you're looking at the rotating part, you're looking down on the head of the fastener, okay? So you're looking at it like that, all right? it undoes in the direction that it rotates. So whichever direction the machine spins in, that's the sense of rotation generally that's gonna get the fastener undone. So the linisher rotates counterclockwise when you look down on the top of the fastener. And that means that's the direction that the fastener is gonna undo. So it's a right-hand thread counterclockwise to undo when you look down on top of it, okay? An example of a left-hand thread is a bench grinder. Actually, a bench grinder is an example of a left-hand thread and a right-hand thread. You've got one axle, it's rotating in the same direction with a bench grinder, okay? But the right-hand wheel is rotating counterclockwise when you look on top of the nut on the end of the shaft. So it's going to have a right-hand thread on top of it. It's going to undo anti-clockwise, counter-clockwise, okay? But when you go over the left-hand side and you look at the left-hand wheel, it's rotating clockwise. And that means the nut on that side is gonna undo by rotating clockwise. Therefore, it's a left-handed thread. So the left wheel on the bench grinder, left-hand thread. The right wheel on the bench grinder, right-hand thread. And that's generally how this works. If you ever need to get the, let's have a look. If you ever need to get the chuck off a battery drill, or a portable drill generally, they got a left-hand threaded screw right down in the guts of the chuck. So it's going to undo in the reverse sense. It's going to be clockwise to undo, okay? But these things are generally held on the chucks themselves. Once you've undone the retaining screw, the chucks themselves are generally held on a half-inch 20 UNF thread, okay, but it's a right-hand thread. So when you look at the chuck end on like this, it's going to be counterclockwise to undo. It's going to go the normal way because it's a right-hand thread. But the set screw that retains the chuck is a left-hand thread down in the guts of the chuck between the jaws. <laughs> Number seven now, the most fundamental tool in all of human history, the hammer, okay? Most people start off with some sort of variation on the theme of framing hammer. And framing hammers have their place, which would be driving nails into wood. And if you want to go into this land of mechanical adventure, then I'd suggest you also need a decent ball-peen hammer. That should be hammer number two without the dead spider on the ball. They're really useful, extremely good for hitting center punches and things of that nature, but not very good for disassembly generally because 
these are case hardened and any time you hit anything that you're disassembling you're risking breaking it or at the very least marring the surface and denting the shit out of it and you don't want to do that okay so let's put this to one side although if you've only got one hammer and it's a framing hammer this baby should be number two and I'd suggest go in that hole 24 to 32 ounce range which would be a pound and a half to two pounds so you know work it out in kilos but hammers tend to remain imperial this is uh, 24 I think and it's just right it feels really good to use so if you've got your ball peen hammer the next thing you're going to want is a soft faced hammer and they come in a few different flavors these cheap ones are actually really good they're they're dead blow, so they don't bounce so much. They're full of like lead shot. They just hit without bouncing, which is a really nice positive way to get something that's held down by a gasket that's been in place for 25 years or something, right? It could be really baked on, and you need to persuade the shit out of it without fracturing it. So it's, in a sense, a more deliberate but less sharp impact it's just better at transferring momentum and moving stuff whereas a hammer like this is better at driving a punch with a sharp point on it or a cold chisel into a piece of metal to do some cutting or marking right so that would be the difference these cheap plastic dead blow hammers are awesome you can get them in a set of three they cost bugger all they're really useful you can also get like a more machinist friendly version of the dead blow thing it's got replaceable faces but this has done a lot of work and they don't really wear out if you use them for the right sort of thing you know they're a really useful nice tool to use they're good for making sure that something you put in a drill press vise or a milling vise is sitting flat like down on the parallels or whatever so pretty versatile like that also good if you're dialing something in on a lathe because you can spin it around with an indicator on it and the high bits here and you just persuade it down and it doesn't leave a mark on the thing that you're machining which is always nice and my favorite is the soft metal hammer this is brass and I bought this about 30 years ago when stupidly enough I bent the crankshaft in a mulching machine by forcing it to eat a tent peg and the thing about brass uh, crankshaft the brass the thing about cast iron crankshafts is that you can't bend them straight because they'll break like they'll fracture but you can hit them straight and that's what I bought this for and as you can see it's done a little bit of work since then but essentially to straighten a crankshaft you just rotate it around with an indicator on it and look at the high bit give it a judicious hit and then just get it to within a few thousand back to concentricity and then our work here is done you don't even have to pull the engine apart 30 years later mulch is still running so must have done something right there I love this hammer I use it so often I hit punches and chisels with it and all kinds of things it's just it's a really satisfying tool and obviously with a shorter handle like this it's just a little bit more maneuverable when you've got a confined space sort of job with a bunch of jigs around it or whatever else so little tiny brass soft face hammer also dead useful of course a man can never have too many hammers Tip number eight now, you don't need a massive compressor in your home shed, but even a little compressor is so useful. And the first accessory I would get after the tyre reinflation kit is 
an air gum like this and a little tiny flexible hose, right? So useful for getting the grit out of threaded holes and machine surfaces and something that you've just washed off in degreaser. It'll get most of the degreaser off and any residual particles that are on the part in places that matter, this is just a great solution. And the little flexible hose just makes this so much more manoeuvrable than the big thick hose that comes out of the compressor. Now I've got a big compressor behind that wall there. It hasn't been energised for a week or so. So it's probably only got residual air in the shop air supply, but you just connect it up. Bob's your mother's brother. You're energised. Anytime you use compressed air, Make sure you wear safety specs because there's nothing compressed air enjoys more than to get you to hospital by blowing some abrasive shit back in your face, reflecting it off the surfaces of the parts that you've just cleaned or that you want to blow dry or whatever. You just want to regulate the air to about three atmospheres, so like 40, 45 psi, something like that. That's heaps to get the job done. You don't need a huge compressor for that because what are you going to be cleaning? Like three or four drilled and tapped holes or something of that nature. And if the compressor's got to run again to get the job done, then fantastic. Just buy a little compressor and a little bit of shop air is going to go a hell of a long way in terms of improving the calibre of the cleanup and also saving you a shitload of time. Tip number nine now is about specialty tools. Now, there's no shortage of tools that you can buy for bespoke operations. And if you're going to be doing that all the time, then fantastic. Like, approved, dude. I could maybe machine myself up a special drift for pulling apart a Jacob's chuck, for example, and I could put that in the press and use that. But you know what? If I'm pulling apart a number 34 Jacob's chuck, I know that this three-quarter drive... 46 millimeter socket is exactly the right size to drift the outside of the chuck off the inside body of the chuck. Therefore, why do I need a specialty tool? And this is, of course, what I mean about hacking this or that. Now, you can buy different drifts for getting bearings back onto shafts, but you can find a deep socket that goes over the shaft, and if it's long enough, you can hit it with a hammer like this, and you don't need to buy a hydraulic press, for example. Okay, so there's that. If you really, really need a tool, and there's no hack for that, then you don't really have an option, and an example of that would be these bearing knives. Now, they come in two sizes. This is large. I don't know what size it is, but this is kind of small, and I, I already had this. So this is what I use to get the bearings off the shaft of the motor in the linisher. And if you need to buy a tool like this, then I'd buy some Taiwanese quality. These work just great. They're properly forged, nice and hard. I've used them several times, um, meaning about half a dozen times. I don't tend to pull electric motors apart that often, but they've been really useful for that. So. I'd suggest that in many cases you can get away without the specialty tools if you need them buy them but certainly don't buy the best German ones that uh, money can buy unless there's no other option and you're thinking about being bearingremoverexpert.com.au even though Albors probably already has that one. Now just finally, tip number 10, okay, we're nearly there. I'd suggest that the anatomy of these kinds of disassembly and rebuilding 
assignments is this, right? And it's certainly the case with the Linisha, incidentally. I thought I'd be replacing the bearings in the Linisha because it felt to me like they were stuffed, like I couldn't rotate the shaft freely and it felt like something was binding. And then when I actually got the motor apart, it wasn't the bearings at all, they were fine. There's actually a electromagnetic sort of spring-loaded brake built into the Linisha. So what happens is, when you hit the go button for the Linisher and you energise the whole system, an electromagnet activates and it sucks a brake disc along the shaft out of contact with the friction material on the end cap of the motor, thus releasing the brake. That's the theory anyway, right? And then when you hit the stop button, the electromagnet turns off, the spring drives the disc against the friction material the Linisher stops rapidly because I guess you could be wound up in it. It's always nice if it stops quickly if the machine is trying to kill you. So there you go. It's the first time I've actually pulled apart an electric motor with a brake system built in. And this was the problem, okay, because the snap ring that held the brake into position was chewed up and the whole thing was corroded to buggery because it's in a fairly shit environment. And I had these little parts that all I needed to do was clean things up and get the little parts back in, you know, like the snap rings and there was a roll pin in there but that was okay and, you know, small parts are a problem and it's often a three, five, six, ten cent part that has the capacity to fuck your whole reassembly and it's always eight o'clock at night, Bunnings is closed on a Sunday kind of thing, you know? So I bit the bullet some time ago and I've got together a reasonably comprehensive inventory of small parts and you can buy them easily off the rack sort of thing. You don't have to go in search of so much, but I just thought I'd run by with you what I've got here, which is a selection of the small parts that I've got here to help me with things of this nature that just mean that I don't have to drop everything and wash up and get in the car and try and find an engineering supply place that's open at 7pm on a Sunday because I know Bunnings won't carry that shit anyway. You know what I mean? So here's what I've got in no particular order to show you. Here's an external snap ring assortment, right? It's got a whole bunch of circlips in the back, okay? Every type of external, meaning external meaning going on the outside of a shaft. There's a groove in a shaft, you put an external circlip on it. You need a set of circlip pliers, really useful to have, even if you only open the box once every 18 months. They don't cost that much either. The same thing, but internal because quite often what you've got to retain a bearing or something of that nature that's in a recess is a groove and the same sort of circlip goes in except it's an internal circlip as opposed to one designed to go on the outside of a shaft. Big set of assorted circlips, right? Just some random set screws because quite often you might have a chewed up set screw or that for some reason you might need to put a set screw in something that was not previously there because it's slipping. You grind a little bit of a, a flat on the shaft and you drill a little bit of a hole in the boss and you tap it. Then you need a set screw to hold the whole thing together. A box of set screws. It just means you don't have to go in search of or have your whole workshop covered in disassembled shit for the three weeks it might take Amazon to get the same screw to you. 
bunch of key stock, which is just in case a key is chewed up on a shaft and you really don't want to put the shitty key back there. You need to make a key, well there's your basic stock, you just have to cut it to length and it's already zinc plated to resist corrosion, so happy days. Here's the same, uh, well no, I haven't got there, I've got a set of Woodruff keys as well but I don't think they're here. Assorted hose clamps, because guaranteed, you pull something apart, the hose clamp will be rooted and you need to replace it. Having a bunch of conventional hose clamps, also great for saving the transport and the shops are all closed, I can't finish the job. Roll pins, now they are the spring-loaded pins that go in holes, typically across shafts and things of that nature, to stop things coming out. They can also prevent end float if they're correctly set up. So if the roll pin got chewed up by virtue of the malfunction of the machine, there's your replacement roll pin right there. Bunch of uh, socket head cap screws, M4, M5, M3, like that. There's really useful things to have around because if the fastener fails or the Allen head inside the set screw is chewed up to buggery, then there's a replacement right there on the shelf. And it's so useful to have this kind of stuff. I can't begin to explain how much time that and stress that saves. Bunch of washers, always nice. Springs and hitch pins, because you never know. Bunch of nylock nuts. It's always nice to have a fresh nylock nut. If the nylock nut is a bit rooted because it's been, you know, in a corrosive environment for, I don't know, three decades. And then, box of O-rings. Box of O-rings, so impossibly joyous. Because when was the last time a three cent O-ring let the team down? And I'd say, often enough, dude, because these are the things that fail and stop cheap hydraulic jacks from working and things of that nature. So you buy one box of O-rings and it lasts you forever. You might only use six or eight of them, but those six or eight times, dude, worth it. So anyway... Voyage of Discovery was quite successful with the linisher. I'm glad it all went back together. I'm glad it was only a few, you know, three cent parts that failed. And it was not at all what I was expecting because I was expecting to be down at the local bearing supplier with a couple of codes and some photographs. Instead, I just polished a few parts up and did a bit of lubrication and reassembly. And here we are, but I'm really glad I had those circlips on hand because otherwise that would have been delayed until probably after New Year. And there you go, vindicated. And also it's really satisfying to not so much pull something apart, but get it back together. So what I wanted to do this holidays was just give you some points to consider about doing that because it doesn't matter what the job is it doesn't matter if it's a bearing on a trailer or your bench grinder that's packed up or whatever's packed up you can get it apart and if you only get a few little tips out of here that make your disassembly game you know your tear down game a little bit stronger and by stronger I mean more aligned with the objective of reassembly and functionality after you do the reassembly, then, dude, my work here is done. And if you can think of anything else that I haven't mentioned here that I should have, because you are a teardown Jedi and I've let the team down, let me know in the comments or tell me your experience about pulling something apart and getting it back together, because it is ultimately so rewarding if you can do that, but 
you do feel like gutting yourself if you fail, or at least I do. So anyway, let me have it in the comments. I'd be interested to know what you've got to say on this one. We'll do cars next time, perhaps.